Hello, everybody. Welcome to our next movie podcast at Trek No Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And we're going to do Star Trek First Contact. Uh, this was the second TNG movie. Uh, it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, which, hey, you know, wow. They, they really entrusted, uh, you know, a, a big thing to a cast member, which... I guess we need to watch some of the special features. I'm sure Jonathan Frakes has, you know, uh, self-deprecating things to say about that. But um, you can't really argue with success. He did a pretty good job with it. Uh, it was released in April 4th, 2063. No, wait, that's not right. I think that's the uh, internal date of the movie. 22nd of November, 1996. Um, I guess I should relate my own personal story with this movie. Uh, I was working for a college newspaper at the time uh, at UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, I didn't do much else there, but I worked on the newspaper. And um, I guess Paramount was like into the idea of flying a bunch of college newspaper reporters to Hollywood and having them watch the movie several weeks before the premiere and have a roundtable with the cast, um, you know, uh, I guess that was just the way things were in the 90s. That was the way the economy was back then. Um, yeah. How else would we tell the, the early 20s nerds about the film? Well, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, the internet was not really a thing. So I, I sort of lucked out being at the very tail end of – the pre. Yeah, because I remember there was a website for the movie, but it was running like Shockwave 1.0. <laughs> it looked like a 8-bit Nintendo game. It yeah. had like a postage stamp size video clip or something. Right, um, and QuickTime. So, yeah, I mean, they put me up at the Hilton Century City. I mean, it had to be like a $300 hotel room. I got room service. You know, uh, we were bussed around to the Paramount lot. And, we, you know, I mean, it was just – it was amazing, right? And then, you know, I watched the movie with, uh, you know, other college people. We made friends, talked about Star Trek, you know, saw the cast. Now, it was a round table, so it wasn't like me sitting in a room with uh patrick stewart and you know <laughs> alice Krieger, you know it's like so so really tell me about it no it was it was a round table with like i don't know 50 to 100 people in the yeah. room um but i did wait for a cab with michael dorn afterward um you know just me and michael dorn and he was a nice guy uh, i believe we talked about him flying uh fighter jets anyhow that's my personal star trek first contact story so Maybe I have a special place in my heart for this movie. Maybe I don't. I probably would have just adored it anyway. Yeah. No, it's a great movie. I, I think I saw this with my father at Fort City. This uh, crappy. Wow. Yeah. St still, it's been dying for the last twenty years. Uh, mall on the south in the south the near southwest suburbs of Chicago. Did you wear a, a Kevlar vest when you went? No. You know, it gets it gets a <laughs> that's a little. Or, or is that Brickyard? I forgot. That would probably be Brickyard. I mean, I saw Generations with my whole family. I don't know why I saw Generations with just or First Contact with just my father, but I remember loving the hell out of this movie. Because um, I would have been, what, 15, 14, 13 turned, no, just turned 14 when I saw this. Um, I was like 19. Yeah, so, yeah, I love this movie. It's uh, I'm really excited to watch it again because I, I enjoyed it so much. Um yeah, that's about all I have. I had, a, I had a good, you know, cute family anecdote for generations. I don't have one this time. <laughs> well, so it's uh, the story credit goes to 
Berman, Moore, and Braga, but the screenplay itself was written in collaboration with uh, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga. And it's their second uh, movie screenplay. Of course, they were responsible for Generations. They've apologized for what they feel are the sins of that movie. Uh, we didn't think they were that egregious. Um, if you have the Blu-ray sets, you should really uh, listen to the, the Moore and Braga commentary on both movies. They're, they're really illuminating and interesting. You know, this was a movie where they had more time. Yeah. You know, they had more time to work on it. Well, I guess, yeah. I, I think Generations was one rewrite, like one polish and a good night's sleep away from being a nigh-on flawless film. And I think it was just, you know, between – but I'd rather – like I said, I'd rather all good things got the lion's share of their attention, frankly, because it yeah, I agree was that. a perfect, you know, two hours of my life. Well, and I don't think Generations was flawed to the point that it – shat upon or ruined anything right, that went right. previous. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a <coughs> Star Trek 2009 in my throat. Um, well, and Into Darkness for that matter. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think there are maybe some overall thematic problems with this movie, First Contact. Yeah. I, I don't think they're fatal. Uh, we can discuss them as we we approach them. Um, Really, I think we should just get started. Uh, are you ready to go, Kevin? Yep. So we will press play, get your optical media and or streaming files or whatever you have, uh, VHS tapes. Shadow puppets. Hmm. Ready to go. And we will all press, press play simultaneously in three, two, one. Press play. All right, that took like one second, so if you want to rewind by a second. Here we have the Paramount uh, opening crawl, or whatever you call it. Uh, I have to say it's not inspiring in its level of detail. Um, I, this is just a commentary on the Blu-ray transfer. Uh, there are points when it's quite good. I do think some digital noise reduction was sort of applied liberally to the whole thing. And then it was artificially sharpened afterward to try to bring the level of perceived detail back up. Uh, you know, this is somewhat of a nerd criticism. You know, I've been diving into a lot of cinema of late. And so, you know, my eyes have become very tuned to what's a good transfer and what's not. All right. I got to say, this is a beautiful opening credit sequence. Um, the, the, the coalescing title cards, it's a tiny thing. I, I really wonder if this was Frake's idea or if someone just came up with it and he... You know, approved it. Approved yeah. it. In either in either case, well done, Mr. Frakes. It's just a it's unexpected. Well, and, but the sort of bluishness does evoke a Star Trek special effect. Yeah. So you, it feels kind of spacey. Yeah. You know? And so I remember when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is like it's kind of trippy and cosmic. And I was like, oh wait, that's the words. And I was, yeah. you know, I was impressed by it. It, it. It's it's and it's subtle. It's it's a it's a unique I mean I think science fiction movies more than any have a certain expectation for their title sequences because it's, I think it's just part of the atmosphere and Star Trek movies typically go through their entire opening credits before we get to the action. So I, I like it. And I also have to say as, as, the, as the title card for the composer of swings by this is far and away my favorite, certainly next gen um, movie theme and it ranks in a neck and it's a neck and neck race between this and Star Trek Two for what is my favorite 
movie theme. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of music. And also somewhat unexpected. Like, it's it's orchestral and it's interesting, but it's not as explicitly martial as other Star Trek themes tend to be. Yeah, it's uh, it's got a lot of emotion. It's very uh, emotionally thick. Uh, when I was in the theater, I was there with a, a gay black male named Darren, I believe, from a college in Detroit. And we were watching it together. And we had sort of bonded and, you know, we would whisper things to each other. And when the music started, yeah, and I think right when it hit that crescendo with the, yeah. the cymbal, you know, he leaned over to me and was like, ooh, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> so, Darren, if you're listening, I thought that was very cool. You know, it was a fun little memory. So, directed by Jonathan – and I, I had him too. So, it was yeah. – it was, a to- it was there was one of those things where you're sharing an experience in a movie, movie theater. theater. yeah. So, here's this opening shot. Uh, which, of course, is sort of a direct pullback, uh, unbroken. I, I like this shot. I, I, I like what they did with the Borg cube, because if nothing else, they built on the matte painting very well. It's a sense of space and complexity that they couldn't have achieved on Next Gen, but they can achieve now. So to the extent it subtly reworks the shape, the internal geography of the cube. I'm not bothered. I think it was a really well done shot. So you think this is like a donut inside a cube? Yeah, I think this is like the, yeah. <clears throat> okay. So obviously the makeup is a bit different. You um, know. You know, for, for a while I thought they had gone really nuts with the makeup, but watching the Blu-rays of uh, seasons two and three, there is actually a little more variation to the pale skin yeah. than than you saw in the TV version, so it's not as big a jump. I will say I think they leaned a little too hard on like basically turning them into zombies because it got a little too necrotic. But it, I, I don't dislike it. I just think they. I get redoing the makeup for the movie. It's about a they turned it up to ten when they could have turned it up to eight and been fine. So here's the little horror beat. Um, <laughs> sort of the double dream sequence. Yeah, really well done. I mean, it was, that, that was a neat little effect. Um, so we are being introduced here to our first uh, new starship in a long time. Here's a number 47, card 47. Uh, and we have this admiral. He shows up in Voyager. Okay. Oh, I, I think he, yeah, he does. He's in um, Non Sequitur. Yes. I feel like he's in Non Sequitur. Uh, so here's our sort of beauty shot of the Enterprise E. I know you love this design, Kevin. So I do. I it's of a piece. Um, it's it's not my favorite, but I, I it is pretty. There's a well, it's more angular for you know by any stretch of the imagination than the D. Yeah, the the shallower body is interesting. It reads clo- It reads like a, of a piece with the C, which had a similar or, or the Excelsior that had the very shallow. Um, neck between the drive section and the saucer section. I feel like this room is just a repurposed observation lounge. It is their observation lounge. Uh, it, it has to be. Um, they've got the little ships in the background, so that's nice. Um, I have to say, I, these, I really like these uniforms. Um, well, Counselor Troy's wearing one. That's nice. Yeah, and it's very flattering. I don't dig the blonde highlights on Dr. Oh, Beverly. I know. She's a redhead. Make her a redhead, please. Ooh. Like, she's just straight up blonde there. Like, that's not even highlights. That's just being blonde. Well, that's like the blonde the way my mom is blonde, you know? You don't get older, you just get blonder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah. So, the plot is... She looks good. She, no, she does look very good. <laughs> Her cheekbones are well accented. 
Um, so our, our plot here is that we've been, uh, you know, getting some indications of... Oh, the, the detail work on the model is lovely. The, yeah, it's a great the, model. The, the multi-toned panels. The it, I, I like the way they, they've done it since the Constitution refit. There's a texture to the hull plates that just immediately makes you think real piece of work as opposed to just digitally created thing. Yeah, I'm glad it's a physical model. So I guess the soundproofing on the Enterprise-E is good enough that Picard can just blast his music. Yeah. <laughs> Although, it, I mean, it's like rattling his dishes. Yeah. But the person in the next room can't hear it or something. So they're doing a sensor sweep of the neutral zone. Okay. Now, one of the first – it's at least a question. I don't yeah. – there's the uh, Mentokin tapestry. Little, little touches that we love. Um. My first sort of question, there's also a hair in the frame on the bottom right, uh, at, at the very bottom. <laughs> um, that's something that really should have been fixed. You know, th there is a better transfer of this movie that's waiting to be done, Yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. If you just look at uh, Picard's face, you know, the, just the stubble is not as finely resolved as it would be without the digital noise reduction. So my first question is this notion that Picard somehow senses what the Borg are doing or thinking. Does he still have nanoprobes within his body? That, you know, is it some sort of psychic force? I guess they should have, they should have clarified that more clearly. Okay. Here's I, the bridge. I like the bridge well enough. Um, it's just, nothing's ever going to be as good, good as, as the, the Enterprise horse. D. Right. It's just, it's a little too, I get that they made a bigger space because it's the movie. Well, it's widescreen framing. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Hawk. <laughs> Sorry. Little, little, little sidetrack. We know what he turns into, so. Yeah, don't get attached. Um, we The actor, <laughs> not the character. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I just don't, it's a little too spread out. It, 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 like if people are kind of isolated behind their own yeah I don't like those individual little consoles that that just kind of irritates me it, it just doesn't flow yeah you know? yeah like Vo the Voyager bridge is somewhat similar in terms of overall shape, shape. but the consoles seem more integrated you know it's yeah like, it's like less chaotic maybe there it's too many freestanding consoles I feel like I'd constantly be bumping into stuff yeah well and I think in Voyager everybody has a chair you know yeah. Like, yes, Harry Kim and Tuvok are standing up frequently, yeah. but they have chairs back there if they want them. Right. You know? And I just, I don't get not having a chair in a spaceship that's supposed to have artificial gravity and inertial dampening. Right. Which fails all the time. Yeah. So it seems like you should always have a chair, you know, just in case. So the view screen is being covered over by some sort of... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what. I think that's just the wall behind the view screen, I think. Yeah. So it's supposed to be like a holographic projection or right. something? Right. Okay. It, it's not a window. Not a window. That's a good Th that idea. That being said, someone did point out about our criticism about the window. <laughs> there is a window on the top of the bridge in the D. Oh, sure. Sure. <coughs> so the board cube, uh, this is obviously a new model. Yeah. With some lighting underneath. Looks very good. Yeah, definitely. And it transfers well on the Blu-ray. Yeah. So they've already approached Earth. I kind of wonder how... I suppose the Romulan neutral zone isn't that far from Earth, uh, given that there was a war. So here's the Defiant. little shout-out to uh, DS9. Oh, yeah, and, and I will say, of all the, you know, 
by the time we get to Insurrection <laughs> and Nemesis, it's really cheap the way we get Worf on board. Like, oh, he's here on vacation. Yeah. Okay. This actually makes sense. It makes a level of sense. Probably not the best level of sense because Deep Space Nine is in deep space. space right. Oh, and uh, <coughs> I always and no had, one else from the main crew <laughs> right, is on board. Right. Thank, well, thank God. Uh, I always had a little crush on this helmsman here. It's it's Adam Scott. He plays the boyfriend on Parks and Recreation, and I just it's just cute. So a beautiful shot of the Enterprise coming in. Some nice shield effects. Yeah. I mean, this is all at a level that's well above anything in the shows. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say. Well, look, I mean, how, how do you want to put this? Do you think that the level of effects here is equal to the new movies? Um, They're done differently. I believe... Okay, so that was a nice effect, the view screen, like, turning on. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. I believe that... Shots are framed differently. Yes. They're, they're framed further like, away. If, yeah, if nothing else, I know what is happening in this battle. I know what ships are where, what they are doing, what's happening in a way that I just never do in 2009 or Into Darkness. So I'm okay with the Like, I believe that modern technology would probably render everything here a little bit better, a little bit sharper. Gas yeah, and particle effects would probably be probably not quite cleaner. as um, Like, even now, we're still doing a bunch of the ships disappearing in explosions rather than exploding, if you understand the distinction I'm making. It's yeah. been a frequent complaint of mine. So we could probably spiff those up a little, but there's a sense of layout and movement here that you just never get with the... Um, yeah, the, the fights are choreographed. Yes. And, you know, the, the scale of the ships makes it obvious what's big, what's yeah. small. I always felt bad for that ship that got destroyed in the explosion yeah. of the cube. I'm like, oh, come on, you won. Yeah, flying too close. So now the Borg sphere has come out of the Borg cube. Okay, there, there are two enduring things that come out of first contact that really annoy the hell out of me, but it's not first contact's fault. Um, first is the apparent Borg preoccupation with geometry. Like maybe they went yeah, back they in, like geometric solids. I know, I they, they went back in time and assimilated Euclid, I guess. Um, and the second is the overuse and overreliance on the Borg Queen to drive Borg stories. Well, so yeah, I agree with those two criticisms. Um, we'll get to the Borg Queen when we get there. Yeah. Uh, time travel. Let's talk about time travel. Time travel allows you to go to interesting locales and interesting historical yeah. pieces of Trek lore. And so I'm, I, I don't dislike it from that perspective, but chronometric particles, whatever the hell those are. Like if it's that easy, why not just try again? Why not just do it over and over and over and over until you win? Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it's just, it's a world breaking technology. Yeah. Know? And so, Yes, I've criticized Star Trek 2009 for containing world-breaking technology. At least here, the world-breaking technology is with the villains right. and not with the heroes. Right. Uh, we can maybe think or assume that it's very difficult to do. I don't know. Um, so we're getting a, you know an interesting look at sort of this desiccated uh, industrial wasteland Earth, yeah. which apparently is what the Borg do. To planets or something. Um, it's it's also kind of lazy. It's like, well, there's a vortex, and if we go in it too, we'll go to the same place, and boom. 
And the whole like, oh, we're caught in the wake, and that's why we weren't changed. It's it's just all these it, tropes, right? It's a lot of it's a lot of thank God. It, it, it's just the plot driving it. And I, uh, I'll say this: they do it quickly. Yeah, now that we're do done it with early. it. Good. <laughs> so now we're just in the you know the twenty twenty second twenty first century, like twenty sixty, right? Yeah, it's the twenty sixty three, the late twenty first century. <laughs> so this is going to be apparently after the post atomic horror. Although it doesn't look that bad. Yeah. No, um, no one's carrying around a broken umbrella. Well, I feel... <laughs> I think in Farpoint, that was supposed to be in the 2070s. So this is actually occurring before the mm-hmm. post-atomic horror scene. Is it? I thought that was the 2050s. I, I believe it is. So this, the dramatic date of this movie is supposed to be 2063. Right. Okay. Now... I'll look it up, Kevin. You keep talking about the movie. Okay, so we're introduced to two incredibly good actors um, who I love to death, and I'm very happy they're in this movie. Um, James Cromwell is and and uh, Alfred Woodard are just awesome in this movie. They they both play their parts with such sincerity that their role as like the in a way they're they're the two perfect human everyman characters. He's the opportunistic, you know, grizzled you know, drunk and she's, you know, wide eyed and a little more optimistic, but they both, they both play the parts with such warmth and depth that they, they really nail their part of the story. Yeah. It is 2079. Oh, is it? The post-Sound is supposed to take place or some point after 2079, because that's when the new United, United Nations, Nations was abolished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, well, Hey, I'm not, yeah, it's, that's not a criticism. Yeah. It's just, it's just one of those, um, the world is a big place. Yeah. You know? And apparently there are Eastern and Western coalitions that are battling. And so it's very believable that even yeah. 10 years from this point, the Eastern coalition could still be in a state of right. chaos. So this is 10 years after the third world war. Most of the major cities have been destroyed, 600 million dead. They're stuck with that number because that's what was mentioned in TOS. Yeah. Uh, it's actually kind of light as far as right, casualties right, go. Right, no kidding. But maybe it was a relatively limited nuclear exchange right, right. where it was just major cities that were destroyed. Um, apparently not Paris. Yeah. You know, Or San Francisco for that right. matter. Um, we've, we've never seen... New York in the future. Well, there, there was this great painting at a, I saw at a couple of conventions. It was like a borgified New York, and they were supposed to, they wanted to do a couple of like establishing shots of major Earth cities that had been assimilated, and they just didn't have the money or the time to put them hmm. in, so they showed the concept art. It looked really cool. Yeah, so we're, be, we're you know, this is well done exposition yeah you know they're not giving us the history lesson they're giving us the abridged version right because they all know what they're talking about right like if the borg went back in time to july 3rd 1776 we would not go oh yes and july 4th the continental congress is going to the we'll just say the day before independence yeah so a new transporter effect. That always nagged me. Why do they always need a new transporter for every damn movie? <laughs> well, people have to make their money, I guess. I like Dr. Crusher's jacket because it reminds me of the ones from Star Trek II, like those field jackets with the big collars. I feel like Nehru collars are like the ultimate. It's like, this is the future. You know, some sort of new neck 
neck wear or neck sort of... There's only so much you can do with clothing on human bodies. There's only so many variations and, you know... (laughs) So apparently this was filmed... uh, In a Titan missile silo? Yeah. It's one I've been to, actually. Uh, They didn't let you inside, but they let you outside. It's, uh, It's in... Arizona. Oh, yeah, I've been to that one. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and, you know, it definitely lent a nice air of verisimilitude uh, to the proceedings. Yeah, I agree. I liked it. I liked the wardrobe. I mean, it, it's... Okay, well, so here's our, our first look at the Phoenix yeah. uh, models. I, I feel like this is actually a practical set they just yeah. dropped a nose cone over the missile that's sitting in the silo yeah the the i like the the door the two doors one is bolted shut one is bolted open so that satellites can confirm our compliance with the salt treaty that disabled the silo so we have a gratuitous swear word there um, well you can't have a g rating the uh <laughs> i suppose data said oh shit in generations yeah um but previous to that I think double dumbass on you, you and the, right. the worst offense. <laughs> so that's some good acting by Brent Spiner yeah. with the with, with the, the recoil, yeah. I mean, I'm, there was probably real recoil with the squibs, squibs yeah. that were going off in his vest. Uh, it was a well done effect, and uh, kudos to Brent Spiner for being able to pull it off. Yeah. Is that a new tricorder? I think it's the same one from Generations. Maybe the same one from Voyager. I feel like it's been souped up a little bit. (laughs) No lectures about the Prime Directive. How do you feel about the the hair swept back? At least we don't see all that blonde. I think it would be be more flattering if if she were still a redhead, but it's not a bad look. I mean, she'll never quite rematch, like, season four, season five, shoulder-length red hair. That was... I'm going to say season three, her comeback season. Oh, like the with the shorter bob thing? It was thing. a bob. Was, I like the longer really hair become. personally, but... Well, hey, uh, I like as much Crusher as I can get. Right, so, okay, a couple of things. New I, engineering. I'm glad... I'm, I'm going to say, I'm glad they gave Jordy new eyes. I think the visor at some point would, <laughs> like, especially... In a mod, like the the longer he wears it, the more '80s it looks. If that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. So the contacts look fine, and he's an attractive man with very big eyes. So you know, it's kind of like nice to finally let them out. I am not the world's biggest fan of the new engineering. It's a little too starkly industrial for me. Yeah, it, it's a little too big. Well, having the the um the, the matrix chamber, the, the yeah. reaction chamber, ha- not have a floor next to it is a bizarre choice for me. Yeah. And that's a very nerd criticism, so whatever. But, yeah. you know, we're just used to them always being able to pull things out and, and look at them. And, right. You know, it's like, do they well, if nothing a else, it doesn't, or something? Yeah, the, the engineering set on the Enterprise D looked like a workplace. This looks like a movie set. It's a little too designed. Yeah, there's too much going on. It's like, it's like we've got this budget. So much money, yeah. Let's spend it all. Hey, we, we were talking about this scene here the last time we watched this movie. It, this is a lovely little scene, in part because, you know, the two actors are, you know, doing beautiful work. But Picard's little <laughs> speech about being able to touch this piece of his history 
is lovely and it's a quiet moment because we've just we had a big battle sequence we had a personal battle sequence we've had a lot of running around and there's a nice little moment to breathe well, and, it, and it's character development right and it, and it underscores the importance of like the phoenix in in this way is the macguffin it is the thing that is important to the story so it propels the action. We must make sure the Phoenix launches. Scenes like this actually give it a little more depth. Like it's it's important not just to the history, but to the people. So it actually makes sense that we're this invested in it coming off. Yeah, I mean they're they're giving us cues that show us that they value this the way we might value the Wright brothers' plane. Right. Or uh, I don't know what are some famous vessels. Uh, you know. Famous vessels in American history, you know, the USS Constitution or something. Yeah. So here are these actors. Uh, they get a fair number of speaking parts. This lady's forehead has always uh, sort of mystified me. So we're getting, you know, this is sort of like aliens. Right. Uh, I would never get in a Jeffrey's tube on the Enterprise, not if you paid me a million billion dollars in gold press latinum. Like I gotta say, these Jeffrey's tubes look more comfortable. Yeah, they don't have the grating on the floor <laughs> for your knees. Well, presumably, Kevin, we only see the bad times when people go into Jeffrey's tubes. Do you see? I mean, like her forehead is nuts. Yeah, she, she's she's very. I, almost, I thought it was an appliance. Right. I thought she was an alien or something. Right. But she's not. It's also really there's a lot of product in her hair. Like it just. Looks like a re it's it's simultaneous like I get it's supposed to be like some severe you know Starfleet work do but it looks really complicated to do. Good scream. Yeah. So here's my yeah like yeah. the card is like sensing the Borg. It's what's the mechanism? I wish I wish they would have clarified exactly what <laughs> had happened. Well, all they have to say is you know there there are I have residual you know right nanoprobes, nanoprobes or something. In my body. Yeah. You know they're not enough to assimilate me, but enough that I can feel it. This is our sort of uh, walking shot as yeah. perfected in the West Wing yeah. and other shows like that. You know, it's like something exciting is happening. We're walking down a corridor. You know, it's funny. I just speaking of uh, movie, uh, the original series movies, uh, the str the shoulder strap on Riker's jacket makes me think also of the the sort of Starfleet yeah. bomber jacket. Yeah. This, of course, is Voyager's sick, sick bay, bay set. with that with a really good redress. I mean, that is. Some good detail work on the door and the walls and stuff. Well, the set itself is a beautiful set. You know, it's one of the best sets on yeah. Voyager. Uh, so, you know, not at all bad. Here's our display screen. Uh, Lots of little things Yeah, I on. want that in my home. I just, I do. Um, and I like that Nurse Ogawa is in the sick base set. That's a, it's, it's, it's those little things that just make you happy as a Star Trek fan. Be like, oh, I know these people. <laughs> You're using Celsius. Because, of course, we're all in our commie future where the metric system is <laughs> universal. Somehow they transport over here without being detected. Yeah. I guess that's all the explanation we need. I, I will say, we'll, we'll get to this when we get to the big... Oh, hey, it's... Uh, what's her name? The, the, the woman with the spiky hair? Yeah, dude. Tracy J... Uh, Tra Coco. Tracy Lee Coco. I yeah, think. that... That is awesome. I never noticed that before. Yeah, Ensign J. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we'll get to this when we get to his actual breakdown in the conference room, but I actually think Picard, uh, Patrick Shute is doing a good job of um, the build-up to, like, a PTSD attack. Like, it, his 
sense of foreboding doom is palpable, and I, I think it builds well. Well, so that's, you know, one criticism I've often seen of this movie is that it kind of backtracks a little bit as far as the Picard character. You know, in TNG, you've had Iborg and you've had Descent, and Picard has sort of come to terms with his experience and, and come to a place of emotional quiet, you know? Yeah. And so now he's like, he goes ape shit again. Well, uh, I, I think you can be over something. Like, I think the fact that the Borg, like in Iborg, the Borg did not present a credible threat to the Federation or his ship at that time. I think the fact that there's a real risk here again would reasonably trigger a, a, a problem for even the most stable of persons. I, I don't have a... Tr- this is good comedy. Got, got, I mean, it's it's good comedy. Robert Picardo is a gifted comic yeah. actor, but it's also great Star Trek. It's great fan service. Yeah. This is fan service. Right. This. This is fan service. Not having Spock scream con right. in Into Darkness. That's not fan service. This is fan service because it makes sense. Right. It references something without stealing it or ruining it. Right. You know? And it makes people happy because they like the other thing that's being referenced. Right. And I, I like the – I did like – I swear I never use this. <laughs> yeah. So we have our new phaser here. And this is a nice-looking phaser. Yeah. It's It looks like a slightly slimmed-down version of the compression rifle from, like, the premier Voyager. And it's a Yeah. Unfortunately, they were stuck with that. Uh Plasma coolant will liquefy organic material. So, like, this is all just basic plot stuff. Right. It's like, you know, we have to destroy the things so that the other thing gets destroyed. And, you know, it's fine. I got to kind of wonder how destroying the coolant system of the warp drive won't also, also destroy, destroy, the, destroy ship. the ship, but whatever. So this weapons room is a nice set. I believe they're going to use this very set again in Insurrection. Yeah. And yeah, so Picard is like, let's kill all the Borg. Despite the fact that they may have assimilated our own crew members. Even though, in the last three Borg episodes, they have successfully deprogrammed or unassimilated, you know, at least one, but possibly dozens. You know, like they've seen that Borg aren't completely far gone. It's just... And I know that... Braga and Moore know this, you know? Like, I know they know it, so it has to be a conscious choice on their part. Are they saying that Picard is over the edge? I mean, they are going to have, uh, what's-her-face, the woman who should be Picard, Alfred Woodard's yeah. character. You know, they are going to have her question Picard's choice. Yeah. It's It's just, it might be a little too far. Like I said, I don't mind it. There's a, like, I think, you know, like a similar event would be like a, sol- a soldier who's back from war and has put his life back together and is fine. But if you dropped him back in the jungle, he would be right. Like, I think the severity and scope of this incident would undo the work he had previously done in, ter- in coming to terms with the with what the board did to him. And I think Patrick Stewart does a good enough acting job to make that transition credible. Oh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not impugning the acting at all. Uh, it's the writing. You know, it's just a, it's a choice I probably would not have made, or at least I would have had him say, you know, if we had the time, we could try, but we don't. 
we have to retake the ship and those people may just be lost. You know? Yeah, okay, that that would have been fixed with a line. I agree there. Very, very funny scene. Yeah, and it's good drunk acting. Good, good drunk acting is actually quite difficult. Like, <laughs> it's the... It's like the slightly slowed, slurred everything that she's doing that's like really, actually really funny. And, you know, you're right. This is a well-done composition of a script because it's alternating comic relief with tension and action uh, in a a very nice way that certain other movies that we don't like uh, have not achieved. Uh, Yeah, I love how she, you know... It's like brushes off his help. Yeah. I like the top she's wearing. There's like these little details in the, like in the fabric that I don't know. It's a it's a flattering look for her. It's you know. Yeah, her. Yeah, I don't have to get into an aesthetic criticism of uh, Marina Service. Uh, she's keeping it together. Uh, so James Cromwell, what do you think? Great actor. Like he's he's just uh, I I just finished season two of American Horror Story Asylum and. Uh, he plays this crazy Nazi doctor and he's just so versatile. He, he's, there's just depth there. He, he, and he, does, he makes it look effortless. He really does. Like there's just, you buy this character immediately and yeah. And he's, he's done the show before, right? Cause he was one of the, he, he was or will be one of the, um, karma in Deep space nine. And he was the, um, guy in Angosia, the hunted yeah, the angosian prime minister right he was good in that role too yeah like he can play a pompous officious jerk really well and it's nice to see he has a you know a range um i know there are nerds out there who are somehow upset that james Cromwell doesn't look like the actor who played zephyr cochran well the the klingons don't look like the klingons who play yeah. the klingons let's let's not you know overdo it it's just, you know, it's like I'm a nerd and I have things that I'm critical of, but the things I'm critical of impact the veracity of the universe. Right. I'm like, I'm not going to – like they shouldn't re- – I, I, they shouldn't be locked into a casting choice made 40 years ago. Well, like people were upset. It's like of all the things you could be upset about with Star Trek Into Darkness, one of the most frequent criticisms I've seen is that Benedict Cumberbatch is not Indian. You know, it's like – that that's like number nine hundred on the list of things to criticize I mean, about. T- the movie. Technically, Ricardo Montalban yeah, was an Indian. Exactly. It's like to some degree that doesn't matter because it doesn't matter as far as the story. It's like if you want to criticize the Khan character in that movie, criticize the fact that they didn't mention the eugenics wars at all. You know. I mean, I will say at least they cast a different actor <laughs> of color in that part, and it does feel a little weird to whitewash one of the. It, 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 I get that criticism, but it's like one of. Many. Well, it's it's just, you know, there's a certain reality to things in Hollywood and just in the world. You know, like 30 or 40 years have passed. You know, maybe they just don't – maybe they want to find the best actor, not a guy who looks like another guy. And James Cromwell is a good actor. Yeah, yeah. So, hey. All right. Well, uh, I mean, like, with, like it, I, would, I would say that, that that applies even more here than it does for the – 
criticism of Benedict Cumberbatch because it feels like they've substantively altered the character by casting a different a man from a different race in the character. Like it almost is like their intent, which 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 is what they did intentionally forget the rest of the con history yeah so that i i could see that as being bundled into the larger criticism here it doesn't actually alter the story at all because doesn't he clarify that he was made like newly young by the whatever yeah he was very old when he went to right so so the borgen had time to redecorate i wonder how they get up there (laughs) well i've always questioned like i get the internal sense of unless the borg are attacked they won't attack back and i i've always treated that as like an artifact of the scope of the collective like they could not respond to every individual stimulus that they encounter because they must encounter so many that unless it draws attention to itself it won't merit a response in this context though why wouldn't the borg just attack every starfleet officer they find or have a guard right you know it's like you're part of the collective, and your role in the collective is to guard this place, right. which, if they destroy X, can totally ruin the plan. Right. I guess, in theory, they haven't done this plan before, so they haven't adapted to it, but does well, that mean they can't right. come up with right. a plan? The, the, the Borg adaptation mechanism has always boggled me a little. Like, have they never encountered an object like a phaser before? Are they incapable of extrapolating? Well, in all the trillions of people they've assimilated, they've never had to have a guard, or they've never never had to... Right, like they've never encountered this frequency, really? Or they've never said, maybe we should walk fast this time. Right, or send two. (laughs) Two two cubes, yeah. See, that, that was actually something I kind of hoped Voyager would clarify, that the cube is such an investment of personnel and resources that they've only ever been able to make one at a time. That would actually be cool. Sure. Like, if it's like a planet-wide effort to make this unbelievably massive, powerful ship that we can only produce one every 50 years, even being bored at it. All right, I will say, so far, I'm trying to recall if we ever actually get an instance of Trek Foo here. So far, so good. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Worf took him out with... See, that's how it should happen. Right. Right there. Right. When when some dipshit from DS9 hits a Dominion right. know, like soldier with, with a rifle, they should get their ass kicked. Right. That's exactly how it should happen. Now, I get Data being right. able to do it, and I get Worf, Worf being able to do right. it. Right. But these people should not be able to just punch a Borg into an unconsciousness. Right. You know, so yes, I, I'm feeling good about this action. <laughs> this is all I want. It's like yeah. it, it took the same amount of time to film, you know. And I, it is internally credible. Yeah, yeah, it's just much more credible. So the, the board costume work is well done. They've got some nice lighting going on yeah. underneath pieces. It's interesting. I saw some interviews. Is this the introduction of assimilation? Of the, of the nanotubes, yes. Yeah. Um, the assimilation is much more like – this like well, it's like vampirism, basically. right? It's and it's a really upsetting effect. Like they they did a good job with like the stuff moving under the skin. Um, why don't they just open the door? I assume they locked it. You know, <laughs> do they have locks on the inside uh, it's of these panels? Yeah. <coughs> oh, Picard didn't hold on to his phaser there. This is a very large corridor. Yeah. So, I like these scenes. 
I like the character. I like the role she plays. Yeah. You know, but there is going to be a place where she tries to counsel. Captain right, and, and it should be Dr. Crusher. It should be Crusher or Troy. Yeah. It should be one of the female principals. Right. Like, these these scenes can still be there. Right. They, they don't, there's no reason that they have to go away. Yeah. Um, and and th- this is uh, – it's something, you know, I think Alfred Woodard's always been very good at and everything I've ever seen her in, even when she's in a, you know, smaller part. There's just a – like, of all the guest stars Star Trek has had, I would easily put her in the top 10% of – inhabiting the character in the fictional universe incredibly well. Like, I mean, her job is to be befuddled, by, like stunned by it. And she does that, but there's like a, you never see the seams of her acting. And that, that's something I've always liked about her as an actress. Um, there, there's just a real veracity, veracity to everything she does. And in science fiction, I think that's more necessary um, than ever. So, here is the Borg Queen. Okay. We've had this conversation several times, and we're going to cliff note it for our audience here. I do not have a problem with the idea of the Borg Queen. The Borg are discussed and manifest in insect hive-like ways before. The idea that there is a central authority, or just a a top-of-the-heap, doesn't bother me. I, I can easily understand the idea that the thousands and that the millions of minds that constitute the collective need some nexus to be focused by in order to function. That is fine. Okay. I mind that nexus having an independent id. That is really where the Boar Queen loses me because it's not just that she is the if the if the Boar Queen were the manifestation of the Borg collective consciousness, that would be fine. The idea that she seems to have will and desire and responses separate from the collective. Yeah, why would they allow that consciousness to remain right. and it individual? Beca- it becomes particularly problematic in Voyager. So in the, in the four walls of this movie, I don't mind it. I actually think it's done pretty well. By the time we get to the fifth, sixth, and seventh season of Voyager, it actually gets obnoxious. And that is one of my favorite effect shots in the entire franchise is just the silhouette of the Enterprise in the telescope. It just delights me. Well, it was a well, it was a well done shot because they put just a tiny bit of shake into the image, just yeah. like as if you were looking through a telescope, and a little bit of shimmer because they're looking through an atmosphere. Uh, it just shows the level of of detail that they want to get. Yeah. Um, I see. I I think what you're saying is is right on. I think that happens in this movie. It, it, There's not, too much desire for Locutus. Like, she's upset that he you, left. Right. And there's too much desire for Data. It's just, she's too personal. Right. Which, and I understand it's a movie, and it's different than the show, and it's hard to... Well, so I feel like that's what they were doing with the movie. They were like, well, we need a personality. Right. A villain. Right. It, I've called this the big villain syndrome. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, yeah, pretty much... Every movie except for Star Trek One, basically, has a big villain. No, four didn't. That's true, and that's one of the reasons four was so good. Yeah. Um, at least for this sort of nerdy Star Trek person who doesn't want conflict in his movies. Yeah. Um, that can be conflict. There doesn't have to be mono a mono. Well, I mean, Star Trek Three had Commander Krug, but he wasn't the central yeah, driving plot. Element. He was an yeah. antagonist, but he wasn't like the big baddie. Right. Um, I didn't mind it in Star Trek 2 because 
Well, it was about the wrath of Khan. It's like he, it was a revenge story. Um, but once we got to, uh, I suppose Star Trek six was a cabal. So that was good. Um, it really pretty much happened in the next gen movies where it started to get a little bit old. Well, I think movies themselves have moved to this. Yeah. Like there needs to be a big bad. <laughs> That's the first use of the phrase Star Trek. In Star, in Star, Trek, Star yeah. Trek. I got to say, there were a couple of these that were really, really funny. Like the, we'll get them later. Like the, the bathroom joke that there were a couple of meta jokes in here that were really just really well played. Well, yeah. Like, don't you people go to the bathroom? Right. Is it is it's a terrific meta joke because we never see a toilet. Right. And Barkley, they even had Barkley in here, which was great. Yeah, throwing Barkley in is terrific. You know, that there can never be enough Barkley if you ask me. I actually, you know, I uh, think, there should be a spinoff show just about Barkley. I I I I like that he was in Voyager. I didn't like all the times and the ways they used him because I thought that felt like a backslide. You know, like, oh, for his character. Yeah. Uh, but he's a character that I can see backsliding. Yeah, I just I would have liked to have seen a little more growth. Yeah, he's emotionally fragile. Yeah, you know if he gets transferred from the Enterprise, a, a place where he feels comfortable. Yeah, I could totally see him backsliding. Plus, it's Barkley. Yeah. So I guess her eyeball has been replaced. Again, you know, I just I really question. I mean. Just the fact that Picard knows that Picard has been unassimilated, you know? It's like, they cured him. Yeah. So I think this shot was added later. They're really just in sort of a a blank soundstage. Yeah, it's not bad. It was a good effect. I like how people are sort of unbuttoning their collars, yeah. but not taking off the outer portion of like the jacket. Yeah. Picard has a vest. So are they all wearing a vest under the top thing? Only captains wear the vest, I think. So we only ever saw Cisco in the vest too, right? <laughs> it's it's a rule. The captain has to have a uniform variant. One little variant. So. I- I'd like to know what purpose this room on the ship serves besides being a force field window. Right. Docking port for, for cargo pods or something. I suppose if we were able to see the, the little detail. Yeah. Nothing there can tell us, but there was a little portion. I see. Yeah. We got to be on the underside of either the saucer or the drive section, obviously. I think okay, this is a shot that would probably look better done today, like the the something about the sphericity of the yeah, globe is and not the, the land masses are a little too monochromatic. It doesn't look quite real. Well, I mean, I've never been in orbit, so I can't yeah. tell you. Like they would have been able to get a better shot of the big, like the big blue marble from NASA would have been really great here. <laughs> like this is just it's great very subtle work she looks kind of nauseous like i can't imagine how i'd react opening a window and seeing a planet below me i think that would be pretty upsetting i think you'd probably feel a certain sense of vertigo yeah but then i'd be like woohoo i'm on star trek yeah 
<laughs> well, please, you, you would have woken up with Dr. Crusher leaning over you and been like, wait, am I still asleep? <laughs> <laughs> it's my first ray gun. It, it, it's just a great, oh, it just like the way she grips his hand for dear life. Yeah, it's just, I mean, she looks like she's afraid of falling. Yeah, it, it's just, and you know, that's a green screen. It's just, it's a mark of a good actor <coughs> when you have to make me think you see something that I know you aren't seeing. All right, so why is there no glass? You know, it's like, wouldn't glass just make more sense? Yeah. I suppose there's a metal door. Yeah. So what do you what do you put through that door? So maybe this little label back here will tell us what yeah. that room is for. So there's a Klingon who's been assimilated. I nice never, little I never noticed that before. I am the Borg. That is a contradiction. Yes, we know that, Data. You're right. <laughs> And, you know, look, I mean, so the the way she explains it is fine. This is a neat effect. It's pretty well done. You can't really see the matte lines. Yeah, the, the tubules look pretty CGI, but not distractingly yeah. so. Yeah, tubes are tubes. That There's a bit of lighting inconsistency, you know. But, but yeah, it's right there. Right at the last second, it got a little creaky, but nothing unforgivable, certainly for the time. And I will say, I like the design. Like it's a, it's a, it, it is a well crafted costume. Well, it, it's a bit reminiscent of Metropolis by Fritz Lang. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of the, it, and it's also a bit, you know, H. R. Geiger is that his name or R. R. Geiger, uh, the alien, you know, from the Aliens franchise. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's H. R. Geiger. You know, with sort of tubes in the yeah. back. Um, you know, but she still looks sexy. Yeah. And, and I gotta say, having seen Alice Krieger in person, she is a darn sexy woman, or at least she was in 1996. Yeah, well, there, it, it, she had to have a pretty difficult job to act through all of that stuff and give this character some internal life. And she she succeeds. Like part of why I like her in this movie and can sort of separate it from my problems with how the character was later used in Voyager is her performance is just so interesting. I'm kind of like. Uh, this causes internal philosophical problems for the board, but I'll let it go because I'm enjoying myself. Well, I'm, it's entertaining. Yeah. yeah. You can't dispute that. And, and Brent Spiner does a really good job in this movie. Everything, he, he, we're, we are well past the Mr. Tricorder joke, which I still kind of enjoy. <coughs> and we're not at the, um, like, it, everything's very subtle here. I, I question the ability to turn the emotion chip on and off as a plot device. <laughs> oh, I don't know. So, uh, real skin graft. I mean, it's it's a it makes sense as a problem that you would give to the data character. Yeah. And it's the kind of problem that someone who's well acquainted with the characters would say, Oh, maybe we should try this. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's exactly the problem with nemesis. Nemesis is being written by people who have no idea, you know? Yeah. And it's being directed by people who have no idea. Whatever you want to say about Insurrection, let's say. Yeah. Which was written by Michael Pillar. No, insur Insurrection is a decent two-parter if it happened in season five or well, six. Well, and that's the thing. It is 
perfectly consistent yeah. with TNG. Nemesis is not consistent yes. with TNG. Yes. So all this stuff, even though it's more heightened, it's more aggressive, there's more action, all this stuff, it's still perfectly consistent with okay. TNG. Two things. The goosebump effect on the piece of skin was incredibly well done. Two, the Swedish joke always cracks me up. It's a, you know, I'm a sucker for a good pun. I can't help it. Well, and I'm sure it's something that fans had been saying since, right. you know, 1989. Right. I wonder what, what is this railing in the middle of a hallway? I've never understood that. Yeah, at least it doesn't have the alternating lights. This looks like a particle accelerator, if you ask me. Yeah. Which, hey, there might be a good reason for that. Money doesn't exist in the 24th century. You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our life. Okay, and this is good dialogue because it, I mean, it sets up the the break, the, the, the conversation later on where Picard is explaining how evolved humanity is and then she throws it back in his in his face when he doesn't act that way. So that actually makes sense. It's, all of this works because, you know, even if you don't like the choices they made, they were still conscious choices supported by the story they're telling you know what i mean yeah yeah well the dialogue is good because you know they're juxtaposing uh the evolved sensibility <laughs> definitely not <laughs> swedish sweet. joke just kills me every time <laughs> they're juxtaposing the future sensibility with this sort of near future sensibility uh you know they're showing us that humanity has not yet evolved beyond the acquisition of wealth um, partially I like it because they're just reminding us what Star Trek is. Right. You know, and what is Star Trek, but a utopian vision of a future that's post scarcity yeah. where people are not motivated by, you know, this sort of yeah Yankee trader. Right. You know, it's probably good. They didn't do a Ferengi movie, but whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it says exit. Cafe des Artistes. Okay, there's a couple of things in there. The big yeah. goodbye, like that, that that's like a nerd dream, that little well, panel the, right the there. Cafe des Artistes yeah. from uh, well, always always Paris, Paris, yeah. Uh, Ethan Phillips. Uh, you know, it's, well, that that was uh, was that Brandon Braga? Was it? Oh, at the table at the right. Yeah, definitely like having Ethan Phillips there. He doesn't have to wear makeup, so yeah. it's a fun little thing. Yeah, for, well. There's something I always enjoy about seeing actors I recognize in other parts because it just remi- – like even to the extent it reminds me I'm watching a TV show, it's like, oh, but there's a group of people who all are good at their jobs so they keep coming back and they all like each other and spending time together. It actually enhances my enjoyment of this as art. And that is a fabulous dress. Yeah, she's looking pretty good, I have to say. Hey, is that back Madeline? That, that's that, Madeline. That's yeah. definitely Madeline. <laughs> I, I always thought that. That is absolutely Madeline. It's too bad she didn't get a speaking role. She should have been like, hey, dicks. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, she's she's like jealous or something. Yeah. She's like, she's about to come up to him. Ruby, it's not Madeline. Uh, but it, I thought it was the same actress. If it's not the same actress, it's, she's it's extremely extreme, Like, is it her sister? <laughs> Hillary Hayes. 
Let's take a look. Uh, I will say this is a pretty good... Uh, it is not the same actress. <laughs> well, look up the actress who played Madeline and see if uh, she gets... She, maybe it was just a different woman in the background. And... <laughs> uh, Star Trek always does dress up so well, and it... You know, it, it you has gotta love the image of Captain Picard shooting a Tommy, Tommy gun. gun. It, it's a nice callback to a uh, piece of the action, of yeah. course. Of course, it does use the holodeck trope of turning the safety off. Turning the safety off, yeah. See, here, here's the first... This actually, like, it makes sense. He's having a PTSD attack. So it is a different actress, uh, Rhonda Aldrich. But does Madeline. look really similar. Jesus Christ. Maybe it's just the blonde hairdo or something, but... No, even their faces yeah. are somewhat similar. It's too bad. I wish it could have been Madeline. Yeah. <coughs> Great set design, you know, nice art deco. Um, is it, do you think they just found, like, a hotel ballroom? <laughs> yeah, I mean... It certainly would make sense if it were a standing set, or not a set, but yeah. like a, a location shoot. There are plenty of Art Deco buildings in Los Angeles. See, I like this moment here because even if Picard, even even if we had said the line, you know, we, we can't save them, there's not time to unassimilate them like was done for me, Picard on a normal day would still pause to mourn he would feel yeah. bad and he clearly yeah. is choosing not to and that's part like as a viewer you know something's wrong with Picard because he's not phased by this I just think it could have stood 30 more seconds of development yeah, I, 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 I agree with what you're with what you're saying so is that from Cochran as an alcoholic I love the sunglasses yeah. John Jordy Is he getting a little bit of salt and pepper? Yeah, at this point, yeah. Or is that just a reflection? I think he's getting a little gray. It's a nice vest. I kind of want that vest. <laughs> I like that little scallop design. I love Parkley, like, shy in the background. It's hilarious. Yeah. His hair is quite foofy. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny because I think they made the same joke on Deep Space Nine and Our Man Bashir. They used a piece of copper tubing as a warp plasma conduit, which I'm like, what? Oh, Michael Akuda, you're. Yeah, it looks wonderful. like part of a still. Yeah. <laughs> Very well acted. Yeah. You're right. The, the, the action comedy pacing ratio is very good. Well, and. To some degree, it makes sense because it's taking place in two different locales. You know? yeah. um, these people aren't aware of yeah. what's happening on the Enterprise. And so it doesn't take you out of the action. Uh, it doesn't ruin the tension that's being built. It just feels good. Right. <coughs> and I, I like the little... <laughs> it's a guy walking down. Yeah, well, I, I like the underlying point here about how, you know, even for like these great moments in history and these great people, they are still human, they're still flawed, that doesn't that might make what they do even more impressive rather than less. Uh, 
Yeah. Jordy is going a little bit far here. Yeah. In, in a perfectly entertaining way. Right. Uh, but he's pushing Zephram Cochran over the edge. Yeah. It's like, you see this guy is a little upset, and then you go tell him about his statue. 20 meters is a very tall statue. That is a big statue. Well, I mean, it's an important event, but 20 meters is a... I'm not detecting any leak. Well, so I, it, it's a good joke because it's it's slang that he doesn't get. Right. It would be like if you or I talked about getting on the trolley or something. Right, like, right. Huh? <laughs> Presumably that's Dr. Crusher's stand-in. Yeah. See, and he's joking, you know? I, I don't know. It. I think it's a valid criticism. I am a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a valid criticism of the Picard characterization. I, I just think it's a little uneven. I think it... it somewhat inappropriately shifts back and forth. So the interplexing beacon, they're going to transmit back to the collective. This is kind of stuff that only Star Trek nerds will enjoy. Yeah. Uh, but it does precipitate in a nice set piece. Yeah, oh, totally. So, hey, whatever. There's just, like, they're going to destroy the warp core. They're going to destroy the deflector dish. It's uh, Why don't they just blow up the ship? I guess that question is going to be coming up very right, soon. Right, right. <laughs> nice acting I by know. Michael Dorn. Dorn is such a good straight man. It's just... Well, this is going to be... Is this the first EVA since the motion picture? Very possibly. I think it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they they use the suits and the gravity boots in Star Trek VI, but they're not extravehicular. Right. So, nice indication that Jordy has eyesight that's different. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a really nice space suit. Yeah. It's, it's well done. Well, it, it, my, yeah, my problem with future space suits is they tend to... Not look like they'd protect you from the Right, they, they go a little too far into the idea that we'd be streamlining it. It's like, no matter how good your material, there's still a pressure gradient, a lot of work that has to happen in a suit to make it a livable space. So this is obviously less cumbersome than their real-world counterparts, but... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I believe it's future materials, right. I be, but I believe that it would protect you from the vacuum. Watch your caboose, dicks. Beautiful shot. Yeah, gorgeous work, and... You know, love the fact that they are upside down. Yeah, that's a nice touch because it's like so. What I like about the things they did here is they did things you can do with the movie budget and with movie ideas. Like, a, like it just makes sense to take advantage of it in this way. Beautiful sense of scale. Yeah. This is one of those situations where a seasoned Star Trek fan is like, "Hmm, one of these people is not not like coming others. back." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. I still think we're 10, 20 years away from a computer that can make light play fictionally on the way it plays in reality on what I assume is the six-foot model of the Enterprise E. 
Yeah, it's a well-done effect. You can't see a matline at yeah. all. I'm not really seeing anything. And it's just a beautiful sense of scale and detail. Pretty disgusting, yeah. I have to say. Well yeah. done. Um, so part of the conceit here about the data character is that he's faking it. Yeah. He was only tempted for a fraction of a second. Do you, do you buy that? Do you think that's a cheat? No, I mean... Something about it makes me feel like they were playing it too well. They're, they were playing it as if he really had been converted. Yeah. And it, they were cheating a little bit, cheating the audience a bit. Yeah. You know? We evolved to include the synthetic. Of all the sins Voyager committed in my eyes, the lack of the Borg origin story might be the greatest when it comes to... Even setting aside my annoyance with what they turned the Borg into, not exploring the Borg origin story always drove me crazy. I'm like, you're in the Delta Quadrant. Come yeah. on, give me something. Well, that did drive me crazy. On the other hand, I can see an argument for not doing it because anything you and they try... they do would be stupid. Yeah. ...would never... Work. Yeah. Like, it, it's... So interesting in the fans' mind that making it official would, you know, diminish it. See, I think she's too personal here. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll I'll tell you exactly where the cheat starts if you if you ask me. Right here. So he's feeling the pain. Now I guess they've turned on his emotion chip or something, mm -hmm. you know, but right here he stops fighting, you know, and for the next 30 minutes, mm -hmm. we, we're given every indication that this is a serious concern to him and that he's willing to sacrifice things for it. You know, he's trying to prevaricate, he's trying to, uh, you know, explain. So, Maybe we can take it that he's actually lying to Picard as to how much he was tempted. Mm. Um, I, it just feels like a bit of a cheat. It's not fatal to the movie by any stretch. Because, I mean, in many ways, it's hearkening back to the Descent storyline. Yeah, and this is a much better iteration of that, obviously. Don't be tempted by flesh. It, I, she's really a very good actress because I, I think in the hands of a lesser actress, and, and this goes for Susanna Thompson as well, who whatever my problems with the Voyager portrayal Ooh, is a great actress and a, and a very beautiful woman, um, just really nails this kind of like. Okay, here's here's another I'm fully functional. Yeah, here's another reference. You see again, good use of continuity. The the programmed in multiple techniques. The the, yeah. the, the fan knows why this is funny. The non-fan doesn't need to. Well, and they should still find it funny. It's funny to have the robot talking about being fully programmed. You right. Know? It was funny in the original episode, yeah. and it's funny now, yeah. but it's even funnier if yeah. you've seen the episode. Yeah. That's a great image. You know, beautiful shot of her sort of alien head. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Like, is he is he faking? Is he trying to seduce her? The, the Upside Down was inspired. 
It was just, it just, it's such a, because per- it's as hard to film the top of the saucer as the bottom. <laughs> I suppose it did necessitate making the model as detailed from every angle. Well, which you'd hope they do anyway. Yeah. This is a very video game kind of setup. Right, right. You need to stop. Like, oh, they have two ready. Now they have three. You need to stop before they get all eight. Riker's going to make a choice here that I kind of disagree with. Shooting him? Yes. Because, you know, you're in a wooded area. There's lots of outcroppings, you know. He, he could break his neck. Yeah, yeah. He could get a concussion, you know. Stun has been kind of an interesting physical question for me. Like, people should be able to die from stun injuries. Yeah. You know? Like a taser or something, yeah. Well, yeah, if you stun him in the wrong place. And they did mention that in a, a wretched, wretched episode I mean, he could drown. Well, they're right there. I, mean. I know. Granted. Um, the Samaritan snare, they talked about being stunned too many times. So at least there was that. But just the physical injury, you know? Yeah. If you knock someone down, they could die. Yeah. It has happened. <coughs> There's a lawsuit right now in Chicago. Mayor Daly's nephew yeah. punched, punched some someone, guy yeah. and he knocked him down and he landed on like a fire hydrant or something yeah. and broke his neck. I will say I really like the actual panels. The <laughs> well, sure, it's this sort of like again, it's it's like you gotta press the buttons and turn the thing. Well, I will say they did a good job. Either the actor or the prop worker both did a good job of making it feel like you were actually turning the magnetic lock that holds this enormous piece of equipment in place. Okay, yeah. And again, it's like they've got guns. They're messing with the thing that you're working right, on. Right, why not just go now? Yeah. I there's a little there's a little touch here when he puts it down and they clearly magnetically like clamps down onto the side of the ship and that was I always I like that. I thought that was a nice touch too. Well they're doing a good job of, of moving in a way that yeah. it makes it look like gravity is not it looks like these things are color coded. Like yeah. there was a red, yellow, and blue one. Yeah. It's interesting that the Borg can exit the, the, be they, in the vacuum. Right. <coughs> so pretty well done. Yeah. Zero G work. Yeah. This is not the best composite right here. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not awful. Yeah. And if memory serves, this is where the Borg components discovered in Enterprise come from. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's. Oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I've brought it up. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> well, hey, uh, it's uh, we're gonna have a lot to say about Enterprise. The main thesis statement, I think, will be: this is not as bad as the new movies. <laughs> um. Having watched some of the special features of Enterprise, I still think it's a labor of love. Yeah. It's not a cynical yeah. cynical piece of work, which I do think the new movies are. Yeah. 
And I think Nemesis was, for that matter. Yeah. So Worf has brought along his Mechleth, I believe. Yes. I always like the Mechleth. Sure. Well, and it makes sense as something to bring along here, because it's portable. Yeah. Makes you wonder why they don't all care. Like, the Borg shielding, like, it's never adapted to knives. <laughs> knives. Yeah. Well, and all those tubes and stuff, it's like you... If the tubes were really essential. So Picard has just mentioned how they could you destroy half, just half the, the ship. ship. Yeah, that was that was a gamble. I guess. <laughs> I, I just feel like they should have done that in a different part of the hull. Right. Glad he didn't cut his own uh, yeah. spacesuit there. Uh-oh. I suppose this is a good place. Is that good blood work? Yeah. Um, Major Barrett computer voice. Yeah, I'll say I, I do think uh, this was like one of the most egregious examples of how there should be no sound in space. But I tend to let that go. I, I just treat it as part of the soundtrack. <coughs> well, I mean, Worf would be able to hear his hissing, right? But not like the the blade sure. slicing. But still, maybe the Borg is hearing that. Yeah, it's all subjective, you know. Oh no. I never understood why he carried him like off screen, <laughs> other than to carry him off screen. Yeah, so that the you know it, the reveal is more dramatic. Reveal. So I guess the Borg have magnetic boots too. Yeah, they've adapted for that. <laughs> Come on, Picard, you weakling, do it. I've always kind of wondered why he wasn't pushed by the jet of gas. Gas out of the way, yeah. We are the nitpickiest people <laughs> in the world. Um, you know, one day they're going to make a Star Trek piece of work that has literally nothing to nitpick. No question unanswered, no theory unexplored, no choice unvalidated. And it's going to be the best and worst piece of Star Trek we ever watch because it will be perfect in every way and we won't know what to talk about. Yeah. Or our brains will just shut down or something. So yeah, like, either they made that thing really heavy or they're just really good physical actors that just looked... Yeah, there's some sound for them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe they're in a sort of micro-atmosphere. Yeah. Oh no! It's doing a thing. The lights are flashing. So this assimilation... Like, he's already got tubes and shit. Yeah, that happened really quickly. They didn't have to put them on. Right, they could have just been necrotic. I, so, I've always kind of wondered about the Borg... Uh, how the technology works, how it... So when we were looking at the portions of the ship that have been changed or assimilated, it's like, how did they get all this stuff built so quickly? Do the Borg replicate things? Do they have do the, the nanoprobes replicate matter on their own without 
extra material? Do they re-engineer material? It's just, eh. It, I suppose to some degree it doesn't really need to be explained, but again, that's a very Star Trek nitpicky kind of thing. Borg, or sorry, Worf gets the sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger line, uh, assimilate this. Nice use of the Jerry Goldsmith theme here, uh, which I suppose is indicating to the viewer that things have calmed down from a, a level of crisis. And so in some ways it's kind of like a three-act structure where you've got different crises uh, in each portion. And, you know, as a movie structure goes, it's not that bad. Uh, Riker is wearing a Phoenix Mission jersey. Apparently, although the post-atomic horror is bad, it's not bad enough to preclude the ability to sew patches, uh, to design and sew patches onto things. Um, the interior of the Phoenix set is nice looking. And I like the the look out the uh, silo. So they're mentioning that the moon looks a lot different. There are 50 million people living on the moon. Tycho, New Berlin, Lake Armstrong. Lake Armstrong. Have they terraformed the moon? Now, we do know now, which they did not know then, mm -hmm. that there is ice water yeah. on the moon. Uh, it's not visible, so we wouldn't be able to see Lake Armstrong from... Uh, well, I, I always assume there were domes on the moon. Hmm. Like, I, I could assume that they might see lights, but that's about it. Well, they could do it like, like uh, they call it the Sea of Tranquility in the Sea of uh, Storm, so maybe it's like a, like, just large... Just they call it Lake Armstrong. Right. <laughs> so, we're coming back to the... Uh, you know, juxtaposition of motivations, yeah. future versus present. Apparently there are trains that still run. Yeah. It's <laughs> a funny line. Filled with naked women. Yeah, it's a good line. I like that. Well, and Riker seems very uh, sanguine about it. You know, he's not lecturing anybody. Yeah. About it. Picard can get very lectury and professorial about how much better the future is. Yeah. He's done it many times. Yeah. He did it in the neutral zone. Rhetorical nonsense. Who said that? Riker's messing with the future here. <laughs> like, do you think he, like, yeah, do you think he said it just because Riker said he said it? <laughs> They're using a lot of sort of gelled lighting. Yeah. Uh, there have been red lights and yellow lights and green lights throughout the ship. Picard's taken off his vest. And Alfred Woodard, Lily is watching all this. Dr. Crusher is in the same room, also watching all of this. Why do you think Picard is so attached to the Enterprise here? I think it's just 
he's acting irrationally because he can't lose to. He the, doesn't want to lose. Like something. he can't lose more to the Borg. Well, I mean, it's like it clearly isn't the people on the ship that is motivating him, because he's willing to. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. My brother said that to me once. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I just... I, this I is going a little too far for me. I don't know. I I've, I can find that... I, I don't find this an uncredible trauma response. All right, Dr. Crusher, response. follow him. Follow him into the room. I like that Gates McFadden is acting a lot with her face right there. She's clearly processing what's happened. Like, I get that she's saying the captain has made up his mind, but eh, this really should be a crusher scene. It should, it should. It's just a crime against the actress. Right. You know, whatever the story reasons for it, and there are plenty of story reasons for it, you know. Yeah. It's like, here's someone who's known you for 20 years and who knows when you're flying off the handle. This chick has known you for a few hours. Yeah. I suppose, to, on some level, this is indicating that he's been assimilated by the Borg, but that was already covered in the opening scene of the movie. Some nice little future tools here. Yeah. It looks like a laser. Yeah. I think that's just a laser point. Oh, that's a, that's a practical effect, on it. yeah. My dear... I like the models a lot. Uh, yeah. They've definitely improved since the Enterprise D iteration. Well, I, I like the whole model rather than like the half the bas relief, yeah. Yeah. Well, the bas reliefs weren't very good either. Yeah, they were a little mushy. Like I, would Picard really be arguing that they have an evolved sensibility? Is he that lacking in self awareness? Yeah, so my my qualm is not with the acting. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I suppose I find a valid story reason for this because she's not an officer. She's not in awe of him. She has the ability to call bullshit without tripping over a history. But I agree. It would have been more satisfying. It would have had a deeper resonance. Yes, for the fans. If the woman he loves were the one when, telling this. Yeah. Okay. See the re part like the acting is so good and so credible. Like I, I don't know. I, I've dealt with enough. Oh, this always nagged the hell out of me when I rewatched it. He doesn't actually hit any of the ships in the first shot, so I never understood why those two middle and the D and the C are broken. He only hit the glass. Maybe it's just a production. It's just a, it's a, it's an air between two of the shots. Maybe the glass hit the ship. It is. Don't try. <laughs> um, like this feels like a credible trauma response. He's being irrational because his mind is stuck reliving this traumatizing experience. He can't actually get the space right now to see what he's doing. Yeah, I suppose because he's in the crisis, he doesn't have time. I I can see that. 
But it does kind of justify Starfleet's yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, I want those. I, I want that entire set of gold enterprises. I wonder if they auction these off. Yeah. I don't remember seeing them in the Christie's auction. Yeah. Yet. That light fixture is kind of weird. Yeah. It's kind of like a lava lamp mixed with, I don't know, some sort of faux quartz. They aren't a scale. Not to each other, certainly. <laughs> so here we have uh, a British actor delivering an American writer's work. <laughs> Herman Melville, if you want to look it up. You know, I've never read Moby Dick either. <laughs> it's, uh, there are parts that are a slog, but it's definitely got a lot of period charm. There was a, I, I read uh, Moby Dick a long time ago, mm -hmm. and there was a description of a seafood chowder that was so delectable that I ran I didn't literally run to Jewel, but I, I went to Jewel very quickly with all due haste uh, to buy some clam chowder. Uh, and it set me on a clam chowder kick for several years. Uh, <laughs> so there, there's a lot of interest. There's there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful writing mm. in it. Uh, from a modern sensibility, I'm sure a lot of people would wish it were cut by about 20%. Yeah. I have to believe they chose to break the Enterprise D model on purpose. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So was he that convinced by her presentation? For the sake of the movie, you know what I mean? Where it's one of those, like, in reality, the entire arc would have taken several days rather than several hours, but it's a movie. Um, like, I, yeah, I, I do, as a fan, wish it had been Dr. Crusher. Or both of them together. Like, you know, they could have both been in the room shouting at him. Like that would have been well, fun, or she could have gone after Lily to try yeah. to to get her ass out of there. Like, yeah, but then she could have been brought right along. There's right. another forty-seven. Alpha Tango, Beta Charlie. It's like it's a mixture of Greek letters right. and like American call sign. Yeah. How does Worf have the destruct sequence for the Enterprise? <laughs> I guess when it happened off camera, some sort of code was transferred to him. So they can specify the, the yeah. length of the countdown here. These escape pods, it looks like uh, the tops of uh, camper travelers. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the thing you put on top of your roof. Yeah. It's also very reminiscent uh, of Spaceballs. Yes, yes. Well, and the fact that he can apologize to Worf not five minutes after mortally insulting him. Yeah. You know, it just... Eh. I don't know, like, allowing some temporal leeway for the sake of a two-hour movie, I found the plot given reason and the performance for a PTSD attack <laughs> sufficiently justified. All right. I, I need to see where Gravette Island is. I believe it's a fictional place. 
Does Gravette Island actually <laughs> exist? List of fictional islands, Wikipedia. Okay. I guess it's a fictional island. See, now you can hear data. <coughs> I guess the launch person was also killed. Because yeah. Counselor Troy has been boning up on her 21st century engineering. Pre yeah. And that, that's clearly a thing where it's like, eh, let's give Maria Sirtis something to do. Here. Right, why, why pay another actor scale to, to say the lines? Oh, this this is one of my favorite things now because it's so oh, cute. Oh, he's using a disc? Well, it's cute that they think this smaller disc is where music is going. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a mini disc. Yeah. At least maybe we can imagine that like all of the music in the history of the world is on this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Because it, it kind of looks like hol yeah. holographic storage. Right, right. I'm not up on my classic rock enough to know who this is. Is this the Stones? or No, no, it's um. Is it Three Dog Night? The detail work on the uh, cockpit is exquisite. Yeah, it's it's a well realized set. You know the the buttons are very cool looking. This was a nice effect. Of, yeah, uh, the separation. But then, of course, the fan is pleased by the sort of nacelle structure. Yes. Yes. I, I gotta kind of wonder where they got the antimatter from. Yeah, that can't be easy. Well, maybe antimatter in the the fifty years between now and the time of this movie has become easier to synthesize and store. Uh, maybe they're not using a. I mean, you don't need a. Do you need the warp drive? Do you need antimatter? Is it just for the energy, or does the reaction actually create some of the spatial effect that allows for? Well, my my understanding is that. We're going to lapse into yeah. some serious Star Trek nerding here. But yeah. my understanding of warp drive is that you need antimatter as the power source because it is the only uh, power source dense enough to create enough energy for the nacelles to warp space. Right, because I, I, I always took it as the energy is released from the reaction channeled through the dilithium crystals where it turns into warp plasma that is then used in the nacelles to create the warp field. I suppose for a small enough ship, for a small enough maybe jump, fusion or maybe you know. yeah, would be enough. This is also this just ex really good. They look like grand pianos, but other than that, just great effects. Like just the and there's a little window in the back. Yeah, and just the arc of that shot for like from the ship to the planet and all the <coughs> pods lighting up. It just looks great. And you know what? It wasn't shaking at all. I like that. <laughs> there were no lens flares. So Picard is staying behind. He, I guess, was lying. There's another Klingon. Hmm.
So yeah, you see that the, the intermix chamber is elevated. It's like, how do you get to that? Yeah. I feel like this is, some of these sets are being reused. Like maybe the scaffolding is still from TNG. No, maybe not. Is this a, an alteration of the Voyager engineering? No. I don't think it no. is. So we're going to get some retcon here. You know, we've got yeah. the idea that the Borg Queen was present during Locutus's assimilation. Or is it supposed to be more impressionistic? Right, right. Uh, because, of course, she would have died right. on that cube because it was destroyed. And he says, you and right. all the Borg on it were destroyed. So I have no problem believing that the Borg Queen can, like, regenerate elsewhere from, like, some base programming. Oh, hey, no, not at all. It, I mean, it, it makes sense. This is a very similar to our Wayun sort of discussion right. in Deep Space Nine. Right. If you have a race that's perfect for this role, you might have multiple uh, creatures that you would assimilate and then download what you need to download. But would... The Susanna Thompson board queen have the same personality as the Alice Krieger board queen? I always took that to be contiguously the same person. Yeah. Though yeah. A clarification would have been awesome. Yeah, you know, so like this emotional stuff. Yeah. It's just it's inappropriate. It it diminishes the board. Yeah. It brings the Borg into human realms of emotional understanding and awareness. And they're not scary anymore when you can... Manip emotionally manipulate yeah. them, yeah. When you can upset a Borg woman by talking about how she never banged you. You know, it's, yeah. it's just... Yeah. It diminishes the Borg. And that is a fault of this movie. That is not the fault of Voyager. I think Voyager went nuts with it. Oh, I'm not going to dispute that Voyager had problems. There were some decent Borg episodes in Voyager. Yeah. And Seven of Nine was a terrific character. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't completely screw the pooch on the Borg. I think pooch screwing was initiated in this movie. And so it's it's one of my criticisms of First Contact. Interesting acting by Patrick Stewart. Like he's almost into it. Again, right here, this feels like cheating to me. Is this part of Data's ruse? Yeah, that's how that's how I Because now it. he wants to save Picard. Yeah. But he's witnessed this whole thing and he knows Picard has voluntarily, you know, I don't know. And now Data is unlocking the command codes, yeah. which he encrypted previously. Like, this seems like a really dangerous thing to do just to be part of a ruse. That's a save the card, yeah. I mean, calculated risk and all, but... <coughs> it. Do you see where I'm coming from? I, I get it. This feels like cheating. And they've given him a little, like, rumpled hairdo. Yeah. I guess the hair, yeah, that's transplanted hair.
So because you were mentioning before, you know, the setup work that they did for the Phoenix and for this whole historic element. And because they've done that work, this is more dramatic as a result. Yes. Like you feel interested in right. I, it's you're, not, you're rooting it's, for them to succeed. It's not merely the MacGuffin. It is not merely the thing that needs to happen because the movie said so. I feel both the characters on Earth and the characters from the show are sufficiently invested to make this a real thing. Well, and they've made it a real structural integrity. Uh, you know, they, they've made a real contribution to Star Trek lore and history. Yeah. You know, yes, I got to kind of wonder why the Vulcans didn't detect the Enterprise. <laughs> In orbit? Yeah. I suppose they're not using their warp drive right now? Yeah. Um, <coughs> anyhow. Like, Data has unlocked the ship now. The Borg could do whatever they want in the interim. Here. Yeah. And so, if Data is not actually tempted, then the Borg are less effective because they're letting Data do this stuff. You know, they could just let another one of the Borg do, you know, launch the torpedo, do the thing. You'd think they would detect the torpedo launch. Yeah. You'd think they would detect the giant explosion of the Borg sphere. You'd think they'd detect the chronometric particles <laughs> of the... Well, maybe Vulcan sensors of the day aren't that good. I suppose. See, now, what's Data been doing in the last 20 seconds? Walking to the plasma coolant conduit. I suppose. I don't love the look of the plasma coolant. I mean, I get what they were going for. It's a liquid that's aerosolizing almost immediately on contact with the air. Like, it's sublimating very quickly, and I get that. It's not a great effect. Here are these, like, snaky Yeah, this is, this is just to show off all the upper body work that Patrick Stewart's been doing at the gym lately. Yeah. Man's pretty ripped. I mean, I'm not even going to qualify, you know, for a man his age. He's just pretty ripped. <laughs> he he has always struck me as somewhat vain yeah. as an actor. Uh, and that's certainly not uh, a province just of Patrick Stewart. Most actors are incredibly vain people. Um, so a nice effect with, yeah. with Data. They did a good job of not making his head look abnormally large. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they've, they've always done a good job with that. The panel never looks like a thing. Well, they've gotten um, better at it. Yeah. I wonder if it's a, it's a blue screen or a green yeah. screen. I, I just don't like the look of the smoky stuff. Yeah, I get it. I, I get what you're saying. It's not great. I'm not bothered by it, but it's not great. And I also question, number one, how Borg can survive in the vacuum of space but would be destroyed Sorry. by this coolant. Uh, and number two, why all the other Borg immediately like deactivated. Right, something. like wouldn't that have happened? That's a, that's a very movie logic kind right, of thing. Right, right. That's like in, I hate to say it, the Star Wars Episode One, where it's like, oh, we destroyed the droid control ship and now suddenly they all just fall apart. Right. It's nice that it was like a very short right, trip. Right, right. Kind of like the Wright Brothers flight. You know, right. It was only like 12 seconds right. or whatever. 
boy, the atmosphere systems on this ship are pretty good. Yeah. They, they add a nice little sound effect to indicate that the floor is like cold to the point of, you know, liquid nitrogen. Yeah. They're going to go with a bit of an action movie, uh, you know, crescendo to the scene here very soon. Oh, when he snaps the yeah. spinal column. Well, it looks very Terminator, too. Oh, absolutely. Very Terminator looking. And I almost have to believe consciously so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't an, an homage. You know what bothers me about the engine core more than anything? It doesn't light up the room. Yeah, the the red on black is just not a very inspiring color scheme. Got a small body. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like she was extremely cybernetic. Yeah. Like, her whole spinal column was replaced. Her skull. Like, why would they go to the the trouble <laughs> of putting her skin over that? Yeah. The, the work on his arm is really good, too. Yeah. Well, it's nice that they never get close enough. It's just on the edge here of showing us too much of the LEDs. Yeah. But it is 1995, so whatever. 1996. Yeah. I mean, engineering has been assimilated. And again, I question how they can build all this stuff so quickly. Uh, but it's just not as cool a set. The, the Enterprise D set is just so much more interesting. Part of it's nostalgia, I'm sure. Yeah. 0 0.68 seconds is how long he was tempted for. When were these seconds taking place? Was it when he was deactivating the command codes? I don't know. I think it was before. So there's red coming from the bottom and blue coming from yeah, the bottom. Yeah, it just, it looks, I like the... It's cheesy. The other design better. We're supposed to take, like, one is deuterium and the other is antimatter. Yeah. That's lame. So, Captain's Log giving us sort of the plot summation. Beautifully realized effect. It's very reminiscent of, of Close, Close Encounters. encounters. Of yeah, I was going to say. Uh, which I have to imagine was somewhat conscious. Yeah. Uh, neat ship design. Yeah. We've actually never seen a Vulcan ship before this point. No, we saw there were the three Vulcan transports from Unification, but... Those weren't really okay. designed. And I like that I do like that they bring both the sort of clothing style and look of the Vulcans here and the ship design into Enterprise. They use it as a really good jumping off point. I never had a problem with the way the Vulcans were portrayed in Enterprise. I know some did. Oh, I actually liked it. I kinda like that they're pompous jerks. Yeah. Yeah. Some nice extra acting. It's a nifty design. I like the, you know, sort of the way the ramp extends. Yeah. People are a little bit taken aback. <laughs> <laughs> are we to take it that the Vulcans don't have transporters? I guess that that is confirmed by Enterprise. We never see them using a yeah. transporter.
this is, I have to say, of all the scenes in the movie, this feels like the most fans, effectively fan servicey moment. It's a big moment in Star Trek history. It's the emotional payoff of what the crew has been working toward. It just, it feels really good to watch this scene, you know? Well, and bringing in the Jerry Goldsmith main theme, you know, yeah. really helps the emotional impact. You know, it's well staged, you know, having all the extras, the, the camera pan like that. Yeah. You know, it just it gives you a feeling that you're sort of circling a historic moment. Really nice costume work. Yeah, yeah, just it, it's very of a piece. Oh, pointed ears. Here's another quite meta joke. Yeah. Presumably the Vulcans have universal translators. Yeah. <laughs> I've never understood people having a hard time. I know it's just maybe it's because we watched. I guess we've practiced this so many times. Yeah, it's just that that muscle works. (laughs) I'm also glad they resisted the urge to go over the line on meta references, like him walking out with like a you know baby Sarek or something like like you know where it would been like too much at once. Son Spock, right? Like too much at once. Well, if it had been the new movie, it yeah. Like continuity. I, also, I, I, I like that the crew couldn't resist the urge to like watch the moments. It's like, come on, like rule <coughs> schmools. You're not going to not be here. Well, but how do I do have nerd questions? How do they get away without being detected? How do they beam but, up? Well, they yeah. make an they make a reference. I that know they re- they reference yeah. it. They at least put a line of dialogue in. Yeah. They got back into their period gear yeah. to go down to the right. planet to watch right. it. Did everybody keep this a secret? Well. Apparently. Yeah. Because none of them knew they were going to be there. Yeah, they just beamed the hell up. You know? It's, uh, I don't know. The moon's gravitational field obscured our warp signature. What the hell does that mean? Well, they've hidden in the poles of plant of celestial bodies. At least before. that's a magnetic field. That's true. What does a gravitational field do? Yeah. <coughs> I suspect our future is there waiting for us, and now they're able to just recreate right. the time travel, which is universe breaking. I would have liked a line of dialogue explaining that we can make the return trip, but nothing else, just to clarify that question. It it, it, it doesn't bother me that much. <laughs> How much does it bother me? Um, I like that there's Vulcan woman there. Uh, it is not to Paul or to Paul's relative. <laughs> I didn't hate that episode, by the way. Yeah. The Carbon Creek episode. Yeah. Um, got a little Roy Orbison here. It's uh, it's not the best mat work there. You can see the building sort of yeah. rising next yeah. to the ship. And now you can see the ship moving against the, the trees. Yeah. <laughs> So let's just address the time travel thing before we 
Yeah. The, the, the way I solved it in my head was, and actually there's a really good trilogy of Deep Space Nine books that take place between season six and seven um, where this is discussed. Um, the characters get thrown in time via the wormhole and someone suggests, well, why not just slingshot around the star to get back? And the explanation Dax comes up with is you can't go back a different way than you came because of that would collapse. <laughs> like it, it just wouldn't work for whatever technical reason she comes up with. And I, I like that idea that like, I figure there was enough left or whatever effect the board created to let them go back, but not recreate it. <laughs> yeah. You're stretching. Um, plus it's like, they don't have their deflector dish anymore. Yeah. So it's like, can they even move the ship without... Well, not very quickly. <laughs> Thank God they're at Earth. Maybe they have a spare. I don't know. Um, I think it's a problem that could be solved with, with a line of dialogue. 20 seconds yeah. of dialogue. Yeah. You know, giving some sort of Trechnobabble reason why, well, we can only do it this once. Right. You know, that, yeah, it bugs me. And it's the kind of thing that bugs me that happens frequently in movies where people just kind of play fast and loose. I'm surprised that Rick Berman didn't put the kibosh on it somehow. Or or or, or Michael Pillar or somebody man, yeah. mandate that there be a solution to that dangling thread. Yeah. Uh, because it's just one of those obvious things that, you know, it presents itself obviously – to anybody who thinks for more than two seconds about the fact that it exists. Okay. But that's the thing that can be fixed with half a line of dialogue. Um, but I guess that segues into talking about the writing of the episode. It is a well-constructed, very entertaining movie. I think that the Borg Queen's personality, the time travel aspect of the storyline... And the Picard characterization, which we disagree on, I find it a little bit suspect. I think those things together conspire to take this down a notch as far as writing goes. It's um, If you're going to say that there are grand overall themes, Star Trek themes, I suppose it would have to be first contact being a pivotal moment in human history, changing things somehow giving us the, the genesis of this difference yeah. in ethos. Yeah. You know, be, you know we're, we're not driven by acquisition anymore. Um, and presumably the, the conceit is that the war was driven by that prior ethos. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's not developed a great deal. The, the movie is about action. To, to a large degree. I'm glad that the coda is here. Yeah. That it exists because it brings us back from action franchise to Star Trek um, in a more effective way than the speech at the end of Into Darkness. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, live uh, live long and prosper, seek out new world, blah, blah, blah. It's the captain's – shut up. Shut up. Okay. Anyhow. Um I mean, do you agree? Do you disagree? I largely agree. I've always given the movies a little more latitude when it comes to these things because constructing a self-contained two-hour story rather than the... They have to make it something with a beginning, middle, and end within two, two hours. hours. So you get a lot less time. To, and, you know, the the thing I keep hearing from a lot of the old guard Star Trek actors and creative people is 
they kind of want to see a TV show again just because it's better suited to telling Star Trek stories. To telling the Gene Roddenberry Star Trek Yeah, and that's story. and I completely agree. So I'm, I'm happy to allow a certain focus on action, focus on the villain. Um, well, and when Gene Roddenberry had control of the movies, Star Trek The Motion Picture was the result, which – we don't hate as much as some people, but there is a lot of hatred out there. And, for and that movie can be is a little slow. Yeah. I mean, even effects work aside, the movie moves somewhat ponderously. Some have called it the motionless picture. Yes, so. which is yeah. <laughs> so I'm okay. I'm okay, really, with a ta- here. Here's the thing. I think, especially at this point in history, even at this, even by first contact, Star Trek had been a thing. For 30 years. It already had two complete and two partial series. Well, uh, three if you count the animated series. But it had hundreds and hundreds of hours of material out there. I think like any um, creative franchise, certainly one that wants to endure longer than its cultural moment, it has to have some flexibility. I think you know that you can do Shakespeare – in a you know modern business setting or a pirate ship or like you, there's a latitude there that keeps the material fresh. I am fine with in the movies Star Trek taking a field trip to action-packed adventure. It actually really doesn't bother me at all. Oh, I'm I'm not criticizing the action emphasis of the movie. I just think certain choices were made in getting the story from point A to point B. And having a villain for particular movie reasons, you know, having an action movie is not a problem. You know, Star Trek is action-packed from, heck, the cage. Yeah. But especially where no man has gone before, you know, there are fight scenes, there are action set pieces, you know, there's definitely, there are fisticuffs and explosions and space battles in Star Trek, and that is fine. What I'm saying is, you know, I... I think they took some shortcuts. I agree. I, yeah, yeah. We we disagree on the Picard thing. I think they did enough work, supported by enough good acting, to justify the man had a breakdown because that's the kind of thing that would trigger a breakdown even in a healthy person, let alone one with his history. Um, I agree on the Borg Queen and that it just they needed to find a way to better dovetail the ex- what the Borg Queen's role in creating or sustaining the collective is because I think that would have solved the problem both in the film and Voyager's eventual use of it. Like maybe she was the first Borg or the person who created the Borg and is still connected to the Borg in some unique way. Like that's fine. I'm fine with there being that character. I think she had too much independent agenda from the collective. Yeah. And that, that, and that's the problem because now we have a villain like every other. And that was what made the Borg so scary is that they weren't like any other. Well, they weren't a person. Right. There were no persons. So part of, part of that criticism can go all the way back to Iborg or Descent. Mm-hmm. You know, they had already started watering down the Borg by the end of TNG. Well, yeah, you can only well, – that, that, it's kind of the problem with the Borg generally. You can only defeat the undefeatable villain so many times before you realize <coughs> they're not in fact undefeatable. And if they're not undefeatable, they're not scary. Like the Borg, the reason the Borg and Q who are terrifying is because we don't win. Yeah, they're in fact undefeatable. They were undefeated. We pulled victory out of the out of the hat the last possible second in best of both worlds, and it felt 
and it was at a huge loss. Eleven thousand people, fifty ships. I mean, it felt like a re- it felt like we were really close to utter annihilation. But it did raise the obvious question of why they only sent one cube. Right, which I think Voyager could have mollified by pointing out the cube's a lot. It's a it's a lot of ship. I mean, it's it just seems like it would be a the the, the material to make that much cube seems it would like it would take a long time to assemble. Yeah. So I would be. I think they needed a sharper pick. Like, I get why the Borg are the go-to villain, because they're the big, they're the scary, there's lots of lights. I actually would have been... Here's the thing. Had they made the Borg the Romulans, this movie would have had far fewer internal plot problems for us, because the Romulans have egos and agendas and desires. So that would have been more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... On the plus side, some crisp writing, some good uh, comic relief, which did not derail anything. Yeah. Nothing that uh, ruined any characters or uh, belittled the plot in any way. For instance, if I'm going to bring up J.J. Abrams, you know, the scene in the spaceship with Spock arguing with Uhura, you know, it's like that comic relief, it was mildly amusing. But it called into question the competence of the characters. Yeah. You know, it's like you're in a very serious situation. We should not be having this conversation right here. Uh, I guess that fits with the fact that they're all not Starfleet graduates, but whatever. (coughs) So uh, well-structured, crisply paced action scenes, uh, you know. So I would say the writing is better than Generations. Uh, as a whole yeah just in terms of having put out a product that is an entertaining movie there are some holes there are some problems uh but they're not you know fatal problems yeah <clears throat> acting wise uh i think we're both agreed that it's uniformly excellent is there anyone who sticks out um well i always appreciate a guest actor who can inhabit the star trek universe well and credibly and i think both Cromwell and Woodard did amazing jobs. Like there's just, just like that scene in the window room um, or like on the holodeck or the, the stuff on the, around the Phoenix, like it all just worked like her, like especially for Lily, her character was supposed to be the everyman with whom the audience would identify in this fantastic situation. And you absolutely do. Like there's a, just a light internal life to these characters that was just really well portrayed. Yeah, um, and part of that's writing, but James Cromwell, for instance, uh, really made Zephram Cochran feel like more than just, there's the famous guy who's going to do X, and right. he's the best at everything he does, which is not interesting. Right. Here is a famous guy who's actually flawed, and we didn't realize how flawed he was because we had this sort of halcyon view right. of history. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, It's totally. interesting to have that disparity between expectation and result for the characters in the movie, but it's also just interesting as a viewer to watch someone who is flawed deal with a fantastic situation. So, yeah. Yeah, really well done. Um, I thought I thought Data did a really good job this time. He, uh, like, everything was, ke- like, you, you've said this before, he's best as a straight man. He played everything very, very uh, subtly. There, there were no breakdowns. There were no ridiculous jokes. There were no... Uh, here was the Data... Uh, hijacking story that didn't go off the rails well it doesn't make us question why the hell data is allowed to like be on the ship like 
Yeah, like data data was never used against the crew actually in a meaningful way because they were able to like turn off a program. Like that actually makes sense. Um Alice Krieger was good. Yeah, like it, it's it's one of those I I suppose the quality of the film as film is so good that I tend to more readily, if not give an outright <laughs> pass, tend to shrug in the face of the problems we've identified because on some level I was I was not just entertained it wasn't like oh okay I was amused I was diverted from the you know slog that is my life for two hours I, no I was thoroughly enter- I was gripped by the movie I, I I was in a state of heightened tension and enjoyment and entertainment for almost two complete hours well for me I'm sure some of our uh, friends from uh, let's watch star trek yeah dot uh, com you know we'll hoist us up on our own petard for forgiving the sins of first contact that we did not forgive in the new star trek jj abrams movies um i will differ with that though because because while there are sort of uh shorthand action movie tropes and cliches while there are cut corners that are cut in getting this thing on screen for two hours, there is enough of the real Star Trek, especially the final scene with, yeah. with first contact, but also various scenes in which they discuss the differences between, you know, the way they view things, the, the things that motivate them. There is enough real Star Trek that it does make me give some of it a pass. You know, it's clear that this is being written by people who understand the franchise and care and care and so even if they're cutting a few corners here and there they're going to go to the effort of bringing it back yeah and having it be a part uh, an important part an integral part of the overall star trek mythos you know the new movies have not proved their right to exist you know yeah they haven't asked or answered interesting questions the whole conceit sort of takes them out of interesting questions, you know, uh, from the Star Trek fan perspective, because they're making a point of saying this bears no relation to the thing you love. But then they also don't do anything interesting in terms of saying anything about humanity, saying anything right. about, you know, the universe. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens and a bunch of things that blow up. Here there are things that blow up and a lot of stuff happens, but there is always an effort to bring it back to the central thread of Star Trek. And that is, why is humanity different? What has changed? Is it better? And the answer is yes, it's better. Yeah. You know? And so the Picard story, for whatever problems I might have with it, it's illustrating a point. You know, humanity is better, but people can still be brought low by real emotional trauma. Yeah. But can you bring him back from that? Does he realize that something is greater and something is worth preserving and protecting? He does. You know, he is healed by his being a member of this society, you know? Yeah. To, to at least, to, if not a complete degree, to at least some important degree. Yeah. So whatever problems exist in this, they can be forgiven justifiably by the real fan uh, and as examples of real fans, I will put forth 
Kevin and myself, <laughs> uh, they can be forgiven by the real fan because there is the concerted effort by real Star Trek people who really understand what Star Trek is to graft this story into the overall yeah. ethos of yeah. Star Trek. Like, the, the problems we identified and the way the Borg were portrayed or the way Picard's breakdown is portrayed or the way the time travel conceit is portrayed are concessions to making a two-hour movie as opposed to a six-episode arc. I would have forgiven all of those kinds of sins right. in the new movies if they had felt like they were part of real Star Trek. And they don't. Yeah. They manifestly do not. And there are choices that were made that make them not feel like part of real Star Trek. All right. So yeah. en enough about writing, enough about acting. Uh, production values. Uniformly awesome. I think that there were a few match shots that um, were a little creaky. And you know, I, I didn't dislike the plasma coolant, but I didn't hate it. Um, a couple of things like the, the view screen shots, the Borg battle, the Phoenix itself, the um, EVA scene on the deflector dish. All of it looked exquisite. No, and, there were definitely some serious highlights. Yeah. It, it uh, compared to the franchise to this point, this is easily the high watermark as yeah. far as visual effects. Um, the Enterprise E, it's all right. I, I don't hate it. It, it's not. <laughs> I certainly don't dislike it as much as I dislike the new movie Enterprise. No, they're not hair dryers. Yeah. Um. It it. It feels like a realistic evolution of the Enterprise lineage. Yeah. <coughs> the interior sets were okay. Uh, I like that they used the Voyager sick bay. Uh, the bridge was kind of meh for me. Well, we didn't do a lot on the bridge as bridge, you know? It's not a very bridge-heavy... You know, TNG is a very bridge-heavy show. Right. You know, I would say a good 20% right. of scenes take place on the bridge. Um, it's it's very very weird. I think Family is the only episode without a bridge scene. Yeah. Um, this movie was not a bridge heavy movie. Uh, there were things that happened on the bridge, but the main action did not take place on the bridge. It was a very engineering heavy movie, and I gotta say, engineering was not a terrific set. Yeah, it just doesn't have the same feel. It's not as filmable. It's not as visually interesting. It's just it's a lot of samey sort of it's just, it's just electronic big. doodads yeah. and stuff. Um, so that, that was maybe the one misstep as far as the movie goes. <clears throat> um, for me, this is a four. Uh, it's a four for me. It's not, it hasn't reached the rarefied heights of Star Trek two, Star Trek four, um, where those movies were such perfect blends of everything including characterization you know it's uh hey a four is in the top quartile of star trek and i think this easily has a place in the top quartile i don't think this is as good as some of the 10 episodes uh that we've done for tng this is not as good as yesterday's enterprise this is not as good as all good things um i think this is a quite quite a good movie and Yes, I know I gave Generations a four, and I'll just I'll just say this is a better four than Generations. See, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the five. I think every, every time I've made a list of Star Trek movies in order, and I think yours matches at least. Oh, this, this point, is better than Generations. I'm saying it, we always go, you know, 
con, voyage home, this. I, th- I understand the problems we've, that you identified, and I agree with them in large part. See, I'm judging this against all of Star Trek, not just all the movies, and so I'm content having only two movies be fives. You know, I think I think this rounds out the five <laughs> club for me. Like there, there is something in terms of execution. There's a what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, efficiency. There's a there's an energy and a focus that moves really well. I. I agree with the plot problems, but I, I they're not enough to knock it out a five for me. I'm, 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 I'm okay giving this a five. Yeah, I think that's perfectly justifiable. I would not fault anyone for giving this a five the way I might fault them for giving the Abrams movies a five, because they're clearly ignoramuses. If that if that were the conclusion, well, I, I finally to. realized like what, what what it boils down to is you know about the Abrams movies is. You know, uh, James Dewan, DeForest Kelly, you know, Gates McFadden, LeVar Burton, they've all talked about how people come up to them frequently and say, I became an engineer, a doctor, or whatever, a scientist because of watching this show. And no one's ever going to say to anyone connected to 2009 or Into Darkness, I became anything (laughs) because of this movie. I became $10 less rich. Right. It's just there's there's a reach in the original in in every iteration of Star Trek even the ones i even the the, the boxing episode of voyager still <laughs> somewhere in there has a reach to be something bigger sure that that that, that sense is still there move along home move along home they are trying code, code of honor co- even code of honor angel one yeah spock's brain somewhere in there buried deep deep within <laughs> is is the desire to tell a story about a world that is bigger and better than ours. There, That is clearly there, and it's on the faces of everyone involved. And that's where the new ones fall short, is it's just, we made an action movie. And yeah. you can do action in this oeuvre, as we just watched. This was a successful action movie that was in every frame of a piece with the Star Trek that came before it and after it. Yeah, I agree. That That's, yeah... I mean, this is set apart. It's very action-packed. There's lots of things that blow up. There are people who get killed. You know, it. this should satisfy any random fan of general action sci-fi. Right, right. You know, and uh, I think the budget numbers, uh, you know, the, the box office numbers yeah. bear that out. Yeah. Um, so it's proof positive that there is no reason that you have to sacrifice Real Star Trek intelligence ideas. and emotion for the sake of your consistency, sophistication. Right. You know, there is no reason to sacrifice it because you can tell a successful action story w- within the constraints, the confines, and I don't think they're very confining. Yeah. You know, within the confines of the Star Trek universe. Um. So although I gave it a four, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. I think it's the best of, of the, the next gen movies. TNG certainly, movies. yeah. Um. Yeah, we're going to be coasting out for a while. I'm, I mean, Insurrection is... I, I am an Insurrection liker. What I hate about it is the Ruafu character. Yeah. You know, I, I dislike what the Sona were used as. Yeah. Uh, and it, it made it make less sense because they were turned into such the big villain trope. There have been so many stories that have been told in which uh, a race or a species has been misguided in its uh, in its 
aims or its goals or, or its general modus operandi or its ethos, you know, and they could have told that story yeah. in Insurrection. And to the extent this movie commits a sin by not having the actress be Dr. Crusher in a scene, the movie beats you in the face with that probably. And I love Donna Murphy, don't get me wrong, but that really should have been Dr. Crusher. Yeah. We'll, we'll, but we'll say it back. Yeah. Back. Well, especially because they also resolved the Troy Riker, Troy Riker, thing, Riker yeah. uh, in the same movie. Right. They could have resolved Picard Crusher. Um, that, hell, I would have forgiven anything <laughs> had Picard and Crusher gotten busy. <laughs> Okay, anyway, uh, so that's a 9, and I think that's a very fair score for this movie. Yeah, I'm not bothered by a 9 out of 10. I, I think 8 out of 10 would have been too low. <coughs> I'm, like, I think both of us giving it 4s would aggregate to a... Well, Kevin and I have different things that yeah. we're, we're keen on, yeah. and you know that's what makes... Uh, you know, when you have multiple scores being... Added yeah. to each other, that's what makes it more accurate because we're encompassing more of what people might be interested in. Um, you know, and I, I don't think Kevin's approach to Star Trek is any less valid than mine. I do think there are people's approaches that are less valid <laughs> than ours. Uh, you know, I think Kevin and I, I, I trust Kevin's Trek instincts. Uh, implicitly, you know, <laughs> given that we've watched so much together and talked about it so much, um, you know, we just have different things that, you know, sort of float our boats. Yeah, like, like I understand, yeah, you, you, you definitely approach with a, with a rigor to the science fiction plot elements, whereas I, I tend to be more satisfied by an immersive emotional experience that if you can achieve that, I'm more willing to forgive shortcuts to get there and, well, I, and I think the thing is you and i both care about the things that the other person cares, cares. about right I, yeah i'm not saying i like we love when you give us both there's a reason yesterday's enterprise cause and effect um all good things are the best of next gen because they not they don't just both have science fiction and emotional storytelling they use one to propel both propel each other so successfully well and both both elements are extremely well done right within the confines of one episode right like like we only like the the emotional heft of tasha dying again is what gives some energy to this nifty little science fiction thought experiment we came up with like that's what makes it so good and so yeah if you can give us both we're we're happy campers um you know and so yeah, I, I'm happy with the nine out of ten. I think that's a accurate. I would say that's an accurate score. Yeah, to me, this fell a little bit short in terms of two and four, but better than generation. Yeah, yeah, it fell a little bit short in terms of sort of consistently applied science fiction uh, ideas. Yeah, you know the so, the dangling thread of the time travel. Yeah, the introduction of the Borg Queen and the, the characterization on Picard. Um, just the fact that he doesn't even acknowledge that he's been. Reassimilated. Yeah, that that could have gone a long way. Like, had they just acknowledged it, because they did so such good work with continuity in other, you know, nods, like little. Oh, there were so many nice little jokes and you know little references yeah. that you know. Again, those are the kinds of things that are gonna get a fan on board. Well, also that more than any one of the th- I keep saying the thing that drives me the most crazy, and they all they all equivalently drive me the most crazy is. You can't abandon continuity, but then expect me to be happy at your continuity references. You can't do both. The continuity happened or didn't. 
They, they should just tell a clever story within Star Trek continuity. It's been done. Yeah, uh, uh, I would say out of this the, is one of them. Out of the seven hundred twenty, was it seven hundred twenty-seven individual objects of Star Trek? <laughs> I would say at least five hundred of them are really good. Yeah. Well, this expands continuity in a fun, interesting way. Uh, it fits generally. Yes, there might be rough edges here or there. A few dates get massaged one way or the right. other. That happens all the time. You know, not just in Star Trek. That right. happens in every entertainment franchise that lasts for more than a couple of years. Right. Heck, it happens in entertainment franchises that only last for a couple right. of years. Battlestar Galactica, Rondi Moore. Um, you know... Hell, things that are happening in the fourth season of that are retconning things that are happening in the first season of that. <laughs> Anyhow, it, that's this shows us that you can do it. Yeah. That you can do Enterprise, for instance, that you can do a, a new movie franchise. Hell, they could have told stories about the original series crew that fit completely within – the confines established by TOS in the movies. They could have told the story of how this crew came together. They could have told the story of how Picard assumed command of the ship after right. Captain yeah. Pike. Right. You know, it could have you, fit. You mean Kirk after Pike is at Picard. Sorry. Yeah, but yeah. It, that would have been quite a retcon for Picard <laughs> to take control. For Kirk, yeah. I mean, they could have told the origin story as they're so want to do in Hollywood these days. Right. And fit it in. Yeah. There is there is no reason in the universe that it couldn't have worked. The only reason that it didn't was because they hired people who didn't give a shit about Star Trek. Well, it's like they didn't want it was they didn't want to do the work. It was lazy because they wanted to be able to respond to any question about the internal consistency and say, "Oh, well, it's not the same universe." Then why do I care? Yeah, like you've you've managed to gut like even if they had retconned it after TOS in a way, you know, like had they kept some core of the show and said, we're starting over at the motion picture. We are, we are telling a new batch of stories using the canon of TOS as a springboard to tell new, completely new stories about the original series crew. They could have told year four, year, year five. five. Yeah. You know? But I would, I would have been fine with that. And I would have accepted plen any number of visual or date massaging. Of course. Yeah. Yes. The sets are going to look different. Yes. The actors are going to look different. I'm not a stickler about that. What I'm a stickler about is the world. I want the world. Because that's what drew everyone in. Like yeah. This. That's what I fell in love with is the world. I fell in love with multiple iterations of the world. Yeah. Pieces that look different. Actors being replaced. Makeup being changed. Models being – you know, that's fine. Even points of view being tweaked. Like, like I like Deep Space Nine, especially toward the, the back half of the series, where I think it challenges um, – the the worldview embodied by the original series in the next generation. Sure. I think that's interesting. Like that that is a worthwhile thing to do because it shows that the narrative has still has teeth and life to it. Because that that yeah, like I will you know even like the animated series. It was I think it was pretty clear, especially from the interviews with people. They they wanted to make money, obviously, but they weren't callously just making more material. The people involved in the writing and acting, given that it was a lot of the same people, thought they were making more Star Trek. They were trying. Right. And they didn't always succeed. The, ooh, ben, but they tried. Ben. Ooh. Yeah, the infinite Vulcan, sure. Yeah. Like some it, and, and and that's fine. And I've said this before too. I will take enthusiastic failure of Star Trek 
over a lot of other forms of Cynical entertainment. Money driving. Right. It's like there are times, especially in the original series, where gosh darn it, Gene Roddenberry's wide-eyed worldview <laughs> just doesn't make internal narrative sense. Yes, there are very there are very Gene Roddenberry episodes. Some of them are very good. Some of them are very, very bad. It's 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 like in the first season of Next Gen when he says you can't have personal conflict or children won't mind it won't be upset when their parents die. I'm like you're just wrong, yeah. Gene. I'm sorry. You're just wrong, but I'll take it. It's a it's a view, and it's in and it's if nothing else, I believe all 80 episodes of that show, Gene Roddenberry, if asked, would defend them to the death. He 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 would have a justification for all of their existences. He would care about them enough to say this is what's valuable about them, and that's fine because even if I disagree, I'll still take the earnest attempt at something over the cynical desire to cash in on intellectual property. All right. All right well, where does that start as a support group? Uh, hmm, what would it be called? Shouldn't be Star Trek Anonymous because we don't want to get off of Star, Star Trek. Trek. We, want, we want it back. Um, <laughs> Abrams Anonymous. Yeah. AA. Yeah. All right. Well, the doorbell's ringing, so let's uh, let's make it a point of saying live long and prosper. Have a good night, everyone.